Good morning. Hope you're well. Um, where you hear messy church there, that's not necessarily a uh, direct application to us. Maybe it is, but it's definitely about the Corinthian church. So we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians now for 11 weeks. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's where we'll be today. We're taking uh, a chapter at a time, which is in the book of Corinthians. Maybe a good idea, but maybe it's not. You know, you, you, you kind of have to miss some stuff or at least go by it decently fast. So uh, the same will be true for us today. I, I could easily divide this into two, possibly three sermons. And if we were doing it like we've done it for the last eight years, that's what I would do. Uh, but we're going through uh, this, this book rather fast. <clears throat> if you haven't been with us for an extended period of time, the reason why we're going through 1 Corinthians is we've been going through the book of Acts, actually, uh, for a long time. And... Uh, as we were going through the book of Acts, when we saw the, the, the church in Corinth get planted, we thought it would be a good idea for the summer to come over and study the, <clears throat> study the book of 1 Corinthians and then go back over to uh, the book of Acts just to kind of take a break from the book of Acts. So that's what's going on, and we are in the book of 1 Corinthians starting at chapter 12. Um, if you haven't been with us, the, the way that the book of 1 Corinthians is really kind of, and the biggest picture outlined is you've got the first six chapters that are covering kind of one big main idea, uh, and the second uh, rest, the second half of the book, uh, seven through uh, 15, 16, is covering the second half. The first half of the book, one through six, is regarding some of the issues that this lady named Chloe had written to Paul and said, "There's some things going on in Corinth. You need to, you need to." think about and fix and talk about with them. So in the first half of the book, he does that. And then at chapter 7, there's a switch where he goes, now concerning about the things you wrote. So the, the church in Corinth had actually written to Paul, asked a number of questions about singleness and food sacrifice to idols and things like that. And spiritual gifts was one of those. And so we're going in one of those questions now in chapter 12 through 14, where we're going to see Paul's answer about spiritual gifts. So they had asked about it. And they, had, they definitely had some things that need to be addressed. And so we're kind of starting a new section here, uh, answering one of those questions. Now, this, <clears throat> this question takes three chapters, and we're just going to do a, a chapter a week. But I want you to think about this for a second. So Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts and what they are and how, and how they're supposed to be used. And then in chapter 14, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts and what it looks like specifically in the Sunday morning gathering or the assembly. Sometimes some churches don't necessarily do Sunday mornings. Uh, and so he's going to talk about what it's There was a problem in Corinth. They, they were not exercising their gifts in an orderly way. And so he's going to address that in 14. In chapter 12, he's going to talk about what spiritual gifts are. Interestingly enough, he sticks this, this chapter that we all have in our weddings stuck right there in the middle between spiritual gifts, chapter 13 on love. That's, an, that's intentional. That's not like an accident, right? He's, he's, he's letting chapter 13 kind of be, if you will, here's spiritual gifts, here's spiritual gifts, the mountain to where if we climb the, the, the mountain of love that, that Paul's trying to help us understand, that's supposed to spill over and help us understand the use of spiritual gifts in our own life and the use of spiritual gifts in the church. So chapter 13 is not a throwaway chapter. So next week when we get to chapter 13, it's absolutely huge to be able to understand uh, and apply the, the, the giftings of the Spirit that we've been given. And if you read chapter 13, you'll, you'll begin to understand, even as you read chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where if you have all these amazing things related to spiritual gifts, but you don't love other people, like really love other people, I'm getting ahead of myself, then it's all for nothing. So anyway, all right, so that's, that's what we're doing as we're going into chapters 12 through 14. So what we, 
What we've been doing here for a while is reading the text together. We stand and we read it. And as we stand and we read it, I'll say, uh, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll say, thanks be to God. And so uh, this isn't just a rote kind of thing where we just, you know, say things where it doesn't mean anything. They have great meaning. So as I read it, uh, afterwards when I say, this is the word of the Lord, this is reminding us that this is not my idea. This is not just even Paul's ideas. These are God's words to us. And so since the God of all creation has spoken to us, then we are supposed to put ourselves under the authority of the word. This, is just, this picture where it might look silly is the, the mental picture that we all should have. Our posture is we are underneath these words and whatever it says, I want to submit myself to it and obey it. So that's why you and I afterwards we say, thanks be to God. Thanks that you've given it to us. Thanks for the Holy Spirit to empower me to be obedient to these things. Thank you that we can look at it now for the next you know, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and, 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 uh, and understand it better. So let's all stand together and we'll, we'll read chapter 12. If you're able, stand. Chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. So they had written and they wanted to know about it. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to the other the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another faith... By the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each as one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and it has many members, and all the members of, of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ." For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make, make it any less part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. 
Are there all apostles? Are there all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we ask now that you would come in these moments and teach us by the power of the Spirit that you would uh, fill us all, fill me to teach, fill us all, including me, to hear, to uh, understand your word with greater depth for the purpose of seeing and understanding and knowing Christ, worshiping Christ, loving Christ, serving Christ, and that our hearts and minds would be uh, given over to him. I pray that as we see a text filled with uh, the idea of spiritual gifts, that those that are in Christ would understand that we all have them and that we've been given them for the purpose of uh, the common good, exalting Christ so that we may become uh, far better worshipers of you. We pray now for your help. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think you know this, but I have a lot of kids. Uh, I've got six and another on the way. And so uh, one of the things that is new to me, because I grew up as an only child, so I never experienced before, I didn't even know this happened, uh, but now I know it as a dad, whenever you get out of your car at a store and you walk in together, that everybody stares at you. Um, if you're from a big family, you've got these stares, right? They're, they're like, they don't mean to, but they just can't, it's like a train wreck, they can't take their eye off. It is kind of a train wreck, you, you can't take your eye off this large family walking in and, you know, they're all running everywhere and you're trying to gather them all back in, you're like, stop getting all the carts, we don't need, but we actually, whenever we go to Walmart, you have to have at least two carts if you're a big family, if you, if you have a big family, you know, you get at least two, one for all the kids and one for all the stuff, because if you have it all in one, they jump and stand and all, all the stuff and all your stuff's smashed. Uh, so I, I've got the experience and... Uh, as, as a big family, whenever you're walking through, you always get the question like, hey, uh, is this it? Or um, are all these yours? And the, the one time always favorite is, uh, you know what's causing this, right? Uh, and so, of course we do, and we understand how biology works since we're 40. So um, anyway, uh, one of the things that I have noticed uh, since I grew up an only child, now I have six and almost seven, though, is this. Um, none of your kids are the same. Right? None of them. They're all completely different. If it's possible, I have six completely different personalities. There's, there's none that are the same, right? Uh, and now seven will come in. I'm sure she'll be completely different than all of them. It, the, so the interesting thing is I get to experience this broad diversity of personalities and giftings and abilities, right? And so in a lot of ways, I'm kind of experiencing some of the things that Paul talks about in, in, this, in this text here where everybody, whenever they're all operating at a, at a high level and, and not being disobedient, uh, then, the, church, then the, the, the home is moving forward in a, in a pretty positive way. And in the same way, Paul's trying to help us understand that idea in, in, chap, in, in chapter 12, that um, he's, God has so designed that he's given us, it's like we all are going in, the, in one car to Walmart, right? We all get out and we're all walking in and like, is that all together? That, that one body? Yeah, we are. We're all here together. We, we know what caused it. Jesus caused it, right? So uh, it's the same idea, uh, but just like one of my kids can't come up to me right now and say, you know what? I've decided I'm just going to go do my own thing. I'm not part of the family anymore, and I don't want to contribute to the family. I don't want to do anything. You, that, that would be absurd, right? 
in the same way, he wants us to think that way about the body. So before we even get to it, I want, I want to point us in to what I think in chapter 12 is the key verse in chapter 12. So that we realize that if you're a believer in Christ and you belong to a local church, you absolutely have been given a spiritual gift. And you haven't been given a, given a spiritual gift to use it for your own personal growth, your own personal glory, or your own personal advancement. You've been given a spiritual gift, and if you're a Christian, everybody has. We'll get to this soon. For one purpose, and it's not for you. It's not for you. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. So there's no argument here. You may not feel like you have a spiritual gift. You have one. We're going to look at what those are. But everybody that's a believer has one. And the primary reason that you've been given it is, verse 7, for the common good. So that you have to realize, whoever's in this room right now, your gift is for their good. Your gift is for them collectively to experience how good God is that he would give you this gift so that everybody gets to grow from it, including you. You get to grow from it. That's fine. That's not a problem. But the primary reason you've been given that spiritual gift is not for your personal growth. It's for this body, this group of people, for their growth. So I want to make sure we start with that so we can all get the idea that Paul's wanting to drive towards. Now, um, usually whenever we're doing an outline, I, I put it up a piece at a time. And uh, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to put the whole outline up. Before you look at it, though, don't get overwhelmed, all right? Because it's, it's a big outline. And so uh, just prepare for it. And I'll talk you through it. We'll all be ready for it. And then we're going to go through it. So I, I think it's helpful, though, what we're going to do is when I put it up, I'm going to leave it up the entire sermon so that you can kind of see where I'm going because there's several points and subpoints, and it's just easier, I think, to have that up there the whole time, so when I'm going through, you know where we are. But I just wanted to warn you ahead of time, it's not the smallest outline in the world, all right? So, but it's not the biggest either. All right, let's go ahead and put it up. So there it is, and if you can't see it, I'm sorry, I tried to get it all on one screen. So, uh, so here's, there's really kind of two big points, right? First, we're going to start with, which is the big introduction, is all this is possible because of Jesus, you need to know Christ. And then he starts talking about, in 4 through 31, spiritual gifts and being people of the Spirit. So we have a need for diversity, and he's going to ground that in, in the Trinity in 4 through 6. He's gonna, I've already said number 7, the key gift. And then he's going to talk about a sampling. Here's, in verses 8 through 11, here's a sampling of the gifts. Now, I'm going to come to that in a second, but I don't think that's the exhaustive list. After that, which we saw, he's going to move from this... Diversity in the Godhead and the gifts, and, and he's going to move to a second idea, which is the body of Christ. We saw that as he talked about the body of Christ and how it's important that we realize that we're part of a body. The eye, the ear can't say, I'm not an eye, I don't want to be an eye or ear anymore, etc. So he starts talking about even diversity in, uh, in the body. You have to have an eye, you have to have an ear. And the reason why he talks about those things is all because of spiritual gifts. Whatever gift you have is important to God, and he made you have that gift, that eye, that ear, because everybody, whenever they use their gift together, the body prop- properly functions. And so as he's telling us, he gives us some applications. And then at the very end of 27 through 31, all he does is just, in verses 8 through 11, he gives us this diverse list of gifts. He gives us a second list. So I'm actually going to do 8 through 11 and 27 through 31 in one kind of big section. So we'll leave that up there. Hopefully it'll make sense as we're going through, but I wanted you to kind of have an idea What's going on as we're going through this? Now, verse 1. So now concerning spiritual gifts, the word gifts is actually supplied in our English translation. It's not in the original Greek. It just says now concerning the spiritual. Brothers, I don't want you. So this word, this word gifts could also be persons. 
um, instead of gifts, but I think gifts is probably right considering the context. But we wanted you to know what's there. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, this is important because in the first century, spiritual gifts in this particular time were thought of differently than, than they are now. 2,000 years of being able to read Paul and understand and grow our theology and understand it, we have a better idea of what it means. But in the first century, one thought that if you, were, you had loud enthousi- enthusiasm in a, in a certain setting, whether it be church or even home, uh, and you performed at a really high enthusiastic level, that the spirituality, the public spirituality of that person uh, was considered to be uh, amazing. Well, since you're so loud, since you're so enthusiastic whenever you do stuff, maybe it's not even t- intelligible, but since you're so enthusiastic, now you have a divine mark on you. Now you have a, a, a clear presence upon you that you're spiritual because you're enthusiastic when you do it. You're really loud. And Paul's wanting to help them understand that that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that you're spiritual or that you have a spiritual gift or that you're a believer. So he wants to confront this and he wants them to know that one that's been marked as spiritual or having a spiritual gift or a person of the Spirit, it's not because they're loud. It's because God has done something in them. And so don't confuse why you would be uh, spiritual. It has nothing to do with how loud you can be. And so a static behavior or loud behavior doesn't show one to be spiritual. It just shows them to be loud. Um, But instead, uh, things that would show someone to be spiritual would be not loudness, but love, joy, peace, patience, the fruits of the Spirit, kindness, goodness, self-control. These are the things that, so Paul's, I mean, radically having this huge kind of uh, shift in the minds of people in the first century to help them understand how spiritual gifts work. It's not about loud. It's about your life, right? It's about your life. And so he wants them to understand, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to understand how these things work. And then he, he grounds it all, what's going to come about spiritual gifts. He first has to tell them in verses 2 and 3, in order for you to have a spiritual gift, you have to know Christ. You know that when you're pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to know, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed or Jesus is anathema. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a uni- unique way to... to to lay out the criteria that you need to be a Christian in order to have spiritual gifts. Yes, the way he phrases it certainly is unique. But the big idea of what he's trying to help us understand is, is this. He says, you must be a believer. You must have a clear recognition of the lordship of Christ in your own life. And if you have a clear recognition of, of Christ in your own life, then there's going to be spiritual gifts given to you in your life And the spiritual gifts that are given to you in your life are given to you in order to bring glory to Christ. Not to oppose him, not to to do things that would ever bring a cursing to him, which is obviously not possible. But instead, to glorify him. So, um, this is what Paul means. And if, if you're not a believer, or even if you are, I want you to hear this because we all need to hear the gospel. So this is what he's saying. Uh, I'm reminded of Romans 10 when he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord. That reminds me in in Romans 10, this this idea of how we we say Jesus is Lord. And it says in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So I want to make sure we hear this, right? There's a difference between Savior and Lord. This is no, you know, 
new stuff. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard this. There's a difference between Savior and Lord. The idea that Jesus is my Savior is that he died on the cross for me to save me from my sins, to pull me away from my reckless, sinful heart that wants to sin all the time. And so he saved me, kept me from Satan's sin and death. That's, that's the Savior part. But here Paul says, Lord, Lord. So the idea is not only is he my Savior, but he's my Lord. So that means that since he's done that, my heart cannot get over it. I cannot ever stop thinking about it. I am so amazed that he would do that for me. I want to make him my Lord. I want to say, whatever you want then, wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to talk to, whatever you want me to do to serve the church, you're my Lord. You call the shots. So Savior is like, I'm glad that I don't have to go to hell. Right? But it's not, that's not necessarily Lord. You can just, thanks for saving me, going to do what I want. Paul's saying that he also has to be our Lord, that we say, my life is not my own now. You call the shots. You're in charge. You're the king. You're the one that tells me what to do. And so the gospel, the good news is that, yes, he's our savior, but also that he's our Lord. As it says in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. So when you believe, you're justified or you're declared righteous by God. And it's with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. And you might be saying, well, can I do that? Can I be a Christian then? I want that. If that's what it is to be a Christian, I thought it was just, you know, be good. Outweigh the scales. Do more good things than bad. No, it's not that. It's confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, your Savior, and your Lord. You want to know if you can do that? Paul answers this right there in verse 13, where he says, um, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's in Romans 10, not 1 Corinthians 12. So, Paul grounds this entire thing that he's going to say in the gospel. And he helps us understand that only true believers will have Christ as their Lord. And it's those people that receive spiritual gifts. So there's no halfway gospel with Jesus. It's not like, just, just, just give me the saving part and you can keep the Lord part, Jesus. I'm, I'm not into that part, right? That's not it. It's either Savior and Lord or not saved. But those that know him as Savior and Lord receive spiritual gifts. They're the ones that receive the spiritual gifts. Now, before he goes into it, you can see that he's going to ground uh, this, this discussion on spiritual gifts in the Trinity. He does that. Watch in verse 4, 5, and 6. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There's Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God, God the Father, uh, who empowers them and everyone. So, as he goes into the the discussion of the body uh, and how not everybody can be a head or an ear or an arm, but there's diversity in the body, but there's still a unified person. As he talked about, how you may have the gifts of healing. You may have the gifts of, of uh, prophecy. You may have the gifts of just miracles. You may have the gifts of faith. But all these things work together, and all these diverse gifts are still making us one church. And so he's going to, in two ways, talk about diversity and unity. He's going to say, if we're going to talk about diversity and unity, there's something that's diverse and unified greater than all of us, and that's the Trinity. So for us to understand these, these metaphors of spiritual gifts and body, we're going to ground it all in the Trinity because it is the absolute, not just example, but it is the where we find our own understanding in these things. So he talks about the Trinity here, and he, he grounds the entire, entire uh, understanding of diversity and unity in the Trinity, where he says it's the Spirit that that uh, 
bestows the gifts to us. He tells us that in verse 7. That is the Spirit's decision. Who gets gifts? You don't like your gifts? You can take it up with the Holy Spirit. He, he decided what's best. He's also God. And he knows what's best. Now, that doesn't mean you can't say, Holy Spirit, I don't have this gift. Give it to me. Please, I want it. And I've done that plenty of times. And you just have to be able to willing to say, if I don't get it, I don't get it. But if I do, I do. Awesome. But you can't like hold a grudge at the Holy Spirit when we get up there. Like, I like you and, and Jesus, Father, but the Holy Spirit, he didn't give me my gift. I'm really mad at him. So like, you can't do that, right? He either gives it to you or not, and you have to accept it. Um, so the Holy Spirit gives the gifts, uh, and... As he talks about Christ, we're just to have a Christ-like attitude as we exercise those gifts. And then there, as we do that, it's the result of God the Father working in the Christian's life. So he grounds the entire discussion on the spiritual gifts, uh, talking about the Trinity first. And it's key because it's our example for the church to look at. So there's obvious in the Trinity diversity and unity. They are absolutely unified, but there's clear diversity as the three persons of the Trinity um, work together, and it is how the church is to look and understand the diversity. So as you get to verse 7, now we're starting to understand a little bit better about spiritual gifts. To each, the manifestation of the Spirit, and this is just talking about a spiritual gift, um, is given, so everyone gets one. You may not feel like you get a spiritual gift. I'm a Christian, I have no, I have no spiritual gift, I can't do anything. Yes, you can. Uh, you have spiritual gifts. You may not understand them, you may not know what they are, but I promise you, because this is God's Word, you have a spiritual gift. What it is, I'm not sure. You should definitely try to figure it out. Find someone that's a believer in your life and say, what's the spiritual gift that I have? Help me understand it. Or you can just study 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Uh, we're going to come to that in a second. But study those big lists of gifts and see which ones you might have. So um, everybody has one. And everybody has one for the common good. Uh, Leon Morris says, that's the point of it all. Spiritual gifts are given to be used and to be used in such a way as to edify the whole body of believers, not the individual possessor of the gift. A schismatic individual contradicts the purpose of the gift, someone who's divided. So our gifts are not given to us for us just to use them for ourselves. I remember I had, uh, when I was a youth minister at TKK Baptist this is probably around 2005. Uh, I had some people from a really, really charismatic church come to the, to the, uh, to the church. And I, I'm not against charismatic churches, whatever. That's fine. Um, I don't have the gift of tongues. I know that. I've actually, that's one of the things. God, if this is real, Lord, if, that, if tongues are real, give it to me. I want it. I want to understand it. And I, have, I don't have it, right? So anyway, uh, they came to the church. <clears throat> they just wanted to talk about, about, about speaking in tongues. Now, We'll get to 14 in a couple of weeks, but the problem a lot of times with tongues is that it's amplified as one of the most important tongues, uh, uh, gifts there is, which is like anti-chapter 14. He's like, it's the least. Like, so anyway, so the guy, they came to me and they, they're saying, I speak in tongues. and I speak in tongues in my prayer, private prayer language, and it just helps me. And it just, I mean, I grow so much with it. And so I said, okay, maybe you do. But l- let me take you to verse 7 and chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and let me help you understand one thing. I'm glad you have the gift of tongues, and I'm glad that personally you have this great uh, growth because of it, but the Bible does say that spiritual gifts are given to us for the common good, not our own personal growth. And this was like revolutionary to them. So if you really have it, I I didn't know if they had it, if you really have it, I challenge you to take that gift and actually use it for the the growing uh, and betterment of, of your church you're in, not just your own personal walk. So they were... 
like, wow, I never thought of that. Well, it's right there in the Bible. So um, anyway, <coughs> that's the whole point I'm trying to make here is that whatever you have, it's supposed to be used for the common good. You might say, what is the common good? What is that? What's the common good? John Piper, and you have to quote Piper once a sermon, so here we are. Um, he says this, he gives gifts and ministries for two reasons, to manifest himself and to help us do good to each other in, in, in the church. Gifts are for the glory of God and the good of the church. So the common good is that we would see and understand the glory of God more and that the church would be benefited from it, that the good of the church would happen. So the common good is that you and I would see the glory of God more clearly, love the glory of God when we see it, and want to give our lives for the, cor- the, common, for the glory of God. That's the common good. If we want to know what is that good, it's the glory of God and <coughs> the good of the church. This is the right at the heart of our understanding of biblical theology. Piper continues, the pursuit of God's glory and the pursuit of what is good for us are not two separate pursuits. If you want to do good for people, you try to manifest God to them. If you want to manifest God and make him known for who he really is, you make it your aim to do good to others. So this is the common good. This is the common good. They're given to us so that people will see the, the glory of God. And we, the common good is that we do good for the people in the church. So let's just go ahead and make it real easy for us all, right? Whatever spiritual gift you have, you find a way to use that spiritual gift in your local body, if this is your body, in your local body to bless other people for their good in the Lord so that they worship Jesus better. You can absolutely use your spiritual gift for yourself. I'm not saying you can't. But the reason it's been given for you is for whatever body you're in. If you're in Remedy Church, it's been given to you so that you are using it um, here at Remedy. So are we making... Are we making the glory of God our aim when we use our spiritual gifts? Are we wanting to uh, drive people to help them worship Jesus more often and more wholeheartedly every time you exercise your spiritual gift? Whenever you do it, are you wanting people to say, oh man, look at you, you're just, you're so good at that? Or are you wanting people to say, Jesus is amazing, wow. Are you using your spiritual gifts to point people to the glory of God and... Are you using your spiritual gift for the good of the church? Not just yourself, but the good of the church. When you use your spiritual gift, is the church benefiting from it mostly? Find out what it is. Use it for the church. Use it for the church. Now, in verse 8 through 11, he's going to give us a sample gift, gift list. And I would say, uh, write this down if, you're, if you like to write things down. If you want to write it in your church, God's fine. I mean, in church, in your Bible, God's going to be okay with that, right? So I do that. Right here at 1 Corinthians 12, I have my pen and I wrote, see Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. So that when I come here and I'm reading the gifts, I know, oh, I can also go to Ephesians 4 and Romans 12. And if I put 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 all together, there's a big, huge list of all the spiritual gifts given to me in the Bible. So... <clears throat> I'm going to look at these because that's where we are. But you can also go to Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and you'll see more spiritual gifts. There's overlap in those. And I would even add that if you put all those together, that's not the exhaustive list of gifts. I think Paul, as he's writing, is writing gifts. But I think there's even more gifts outside of Ephesians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. But that's, you know, I'm not alone in that. There's other people that believe that. Um, but I would say... That Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12 are, are the, uh, 
all the spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And in Romans 12, chapter, six, chap, chapter 12, verse 6, he exhorts us, Paul exhorts us to make sure we use our spiritual gifts. So they're not given to us for us just to decide if we want to use them or not. He exhorts us to make sure we use them um, and that we need to use them for the common good. So as we're looking at this particular text in verses 8 through 11, here's a, a sample list. And it's really um, in kind of three categories. Uh, the first two, uh, gift of wisdom and knowledge, are in kind of the word category. And it's one of those ABA categories. The, the second, you know, five or so are in action. So the first two are in word. I have a gift of wisdom or I have a gift of knowledge. I'm going to speak to you in word. The second list, it, or as you continue on, is an action. I have faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, and be able to dis- distinguish between spirits. And then it goes back to word, which can also kind of be action, which is tongues and tongues interpretation. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll explain some of these. Most of these are are pretty straightforward, but um, the difference in the first two between, you can see it in verse 8, to, to one is given the, the utterance of the spirit of wisdom, the other the utterance of knowledge. Uh, that's just um, speaking to people in ways that, that point them to the glory of Christ. I would say probably the difference between the two is wisdom, the gift of wisdom, is applied in moral contexts. This is not right. This is right. You shouldn't do this. You should do this. And the gift of knowledge is not applied necessarily, not necessarily in moral context, but uh, in understanding mysteries. Here's how I understand this mysterious thing. So you're not necessarily using moral language, but you could be. Uh, that, that would be the way I would kind of distinguish between those two. If you keep going, there's next ones, which are faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, distinguishable, distinguishable spirits. Most of those I think you understand. Uh, faith, the gift of faith, the spiritual gift of faith, is not the faith that's needed in order to trust Christ, in order to be saved. Although Ephesians 2.8.9 says that is a gift. It's just that's not a spiritual gift in Ephesians 2.8.9. But there is a spiritual gift of faith where uh, a special measure of faith is allotted to someone that is able to just have this unbelievable ability to trust God in the midst of all kinds of things, good and bad. My mom has a spiritual gift of faith. She's going through cancer, battling it for five or six years now. She knows that 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 can't happen forever. And she's just like, whatever God wants to do, I trust him. It's fine. That's the spiritual gift of faith. How how are you like that? I don't, I'm I'm like eat up with, with like nervousness, mom. How are you like that? She has the spiritual gift of faith. She trusts God, no matter what. Um, so it's not necessarily just the, uh, like the faith that you need to be saved. Um, there's also things like uh, healings and miracles. Those things are pretty straightforward. Prophecy, this is different. New Testament prophecy, the spiritual gift of New Te- Testament prophecy. It's not the same as Old Testament prophecy. Uh, this is the way I remember it. It's just because it's really easy. Old Testament prophecy is largely foretelling, like, you know, here's your future. And New Testament prophecy, prophecy is forthtelling. So I'm telling you what you need to do. I'm foretelling you right now. So foretelling and foretelling is the way I remember that. It's pretty simple. It's foretelling is more exhorting God's people uh, and what's, what's, what they need to do. And that can be done both in sermons, like right now. This could be exercising the gift of prophecy. But it also could just be in a spontaneous time where we're, you or somebody or me or whoever sitting over pizza or coffee and be like, hey, this is what you need to do. Um, that's also exercising the gift of prophecy. Uh, one guy, David Hill, says, New Testament prophets. So Erase what, you know, how it's been kind of misused, the word prophet. I'm a prophet. Oh, okay. I don't think you are. Um, Like, this is what it is. New Testament prophets are those who have grasped the meaning of Scripture, 
perceive that the powerful relevance that it has in the in life of the individual uh, and in the church and society, and they declare that message fearlessly to people. Maybe you are, but that's what it means. It's understanding what the Bible says about things that are going on in our culture and exhorting those things from Scripture to people. Uh, so it's not necessarily like, I'm a prophet, and God's told me that you're going to win the will of fortune. You should plot. Like, that's not what it means. Um, anyway, so... Prophecy, distinguishable spirits, those are pretty straightforward. Tongues and interpretation. The word tongue in the Bible can be pretty confusing. It's glossolalia is the word. And this just means languages. So I know we say tongues in the Bible, but it really just means languages. Different languages. Some people have the gift of languages. Now, this is not what's going on at Pentecost. At Pentecost, whenever it was being spoken in different languages, they understood what was being said to them. The spiritual gift of tongues requires an, interpret, an interpreter. So that's the difference than at Pentecost. Pentecost, that there was, no interpreter was needed. As they were talking, they understood it. So the spiritual gift of tongues always have to have interpretation. That's 1 Corinthians 14. I promise we're going to come to that in two weeks. Um, but that's the, diff, the key difference between the two. More on that in two weeks. Or you can just read ahead right now. But, you know, after I'm done. Uh, it, Let's go ahead and skip because I told you there's a second list uh, and there's some overlap. If you skip down to verse 27, you'll see some more of this. Uh, Now you're the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God's appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. We already saw that. The gift of healing. We already saw that. And here's two new ones. Helping and administration uh, and various kinds of tongues, which we've already seen. So there's some extra ones right there in that list. Apostle, prophets, teachers, helping and administration. So I just want to cover those and then we'll keep going. Um, apostle is those that are sent out on mission Those that are clearly sent out on mission Like a church planner or a founding pastor A prophet is those that regularly proclaim the word of God Which, which we've already seen But it's a little bit different because it's in an order That's why I wanted to repeat that one Teachers, those that will come and supplement evangelistic activity With discipleship um, They communicate a fixed body of information to their people They, they pass on the, the cardinal truths of Christianity to people, and they teach it in ways that people get, right? So when we read that, when we see first, second, and third, uh, that's not to be taken in importance level. So I don't think Paul's saying, well, prophets are the gold medal, and the silver medal goes to, or for, I'm sorry, the gold medal goes to the apostles, the, second, the silver medal goes to prophets, and the third goes to teachers. I don't think he's actually ordering them in, in, in superiority. I think instead... Uh, what he's doing is he's ordering them in the steps necessary to plant a church. You need the apostle to go, someone who can go as a church planner and, and start the work. And then after that, you have the prophet that comes in and proclaims the word of God. And then you have the teacher come in who communicates those. So they're all absolutely important. And they're on equal p- playing field as far as importance level. These are just the steps that they happen in. Um, and then you can see the other two helping and administration, helping means helping. There's nothing fancy about it. Um, it's awesome. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, administrating, because everybody's just the same. Administrating is uh, oversight or guidance. It's, in, it's usually practiced in, in church leadership, but over, administrating is that you can, you can look a lot of thing, at a lot of things and understand them uh, and put them in neat little categories. You're organized. You're organized for the Holy Spirit. Um, verse 11, back over. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each as one individually as He wills. So as verse 7 has already told us, it's the Holy Spirit's decision. What spiritual gifts you get, Holy, uh, verse 11 reiterates that, that it's the Holy Spirit who decides. And if you go back over to 29, 
Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess spiritual gift of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? You don't get all the gifts, is basically what he's saying, but you do get gifts. You don't get them all, but you do get gifts. <clears throat> and then he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, that seems interesting language, and we're going to come back. Well, I'll go ahead and say what I think it is now, but the, the higher uh, can be difficult because... If you don't, well, if you subscribe to the ranking, which I just said I don't subscribe to, then, then you would say, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, you'd say, okay, well, then I want first, I want apostle. Uh, but I don't think that's what he's saying. So I, I don't think that higher means ranking. I think it, it's the word greater from verse 23. We haven't gone to 23, but you can see in those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Um, if a body is part is less honorable and has greater honor, then there's something interesting Paul's doing there. So when I think, I think this desire the higher gifts means desire the greater gifts, and the greater gifts are the ones that are thought of as less honorable. They're thought of as less honorable because they're less visible. They're less visible, and so they're given special honor. So they're not really not important. When Paul says that they, uh, that somebody that's weaker, he's not actually saying that they're, they, they, may, they, they, they look weaker, but they're not actually weaker. And he says, you should pursue those things because in the end, it keeps you humble. It doesn't make you prideful. So pursue the things that, that, that don't exalt you. Pursue those things because those things um, are for the better of the body and for your own soul. That's, I think that's basically what he's saying is earnestly desire the higher gifts, these gifts that, that wouldn't... Uh, in your body and your heart and mind, try to make much of you, but instead would make much of Christ. Now, uh, if we go over to verse 12, he's going to talk about this body metaphor. And he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So I, what I want you to do here is see in verse 13 and verse 14 what Paul's doing where he's talking about unity and then he's talking about diversity. In verse 13, you can see the unity. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. So we're all unified into one spirit. We're all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, we were all made now to drink out of one spirit. So he's emphasizing the unity of all people. And as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, he's doing that while he's talking about this amazing diversity. Because he says, we're Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. So we have different races and we have different socioeconomic statuses. So he's, he's acknowledging the diversity, but he's wanting to emphasize the unity in verse 13. And then, verse 14, he's going to emphasize the diversity. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So he's trying to, in that verse, emphasize that we're, we're massively diverse. We're all kinds of people being saved from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds and all socioeconomic brackets. We're, we're rich and poor. We're different colors, which is great. We want that. But just remember, in all of our diversity, we're still one body. And in our body, one body, we need to be and strive to be and want to be really diverse. That's what he's trying to help you see. And re- This is all grounded in the Trinity, which he put back in in verses 4, 5, and 6. So diversity is wonderful, and unity is absolutely key. That's what he wants us to do as we're going into the the body, or the spiritual gifts. And so, um, in verse 15 through 20, 
he's going to emphasize the key functions of the body um, where he talks about you can't say I'm not a hand because I don't want to be a hand anymore. All this is pretty straightforward. Um, but basically he's saying if you don't like your spiritual gift, if, you, if you're not pleased with it, and you can say I don't want to be this particular person. And he's, he's using the metaphor of the body as like arm, leg to relate to the spiritual gift. I don't want the gift of, of uh, helping. I want the gift of administration. I don't want to be a hand. I want to be a head. He's just like, well, you know, you can't say that. You can't just say, I'm not a hand anymore if you're a hand. I'm not a helper anymore if you're a helper. You just can't, you can't declare that to God. Not a helper anymore, God, even though you have the gift of helping. You are. And so instead of uh, bucking against it and trying not to be that, be what God has created you to be. Um, the context of this body language is spiritual gifts. And he's helping us understand that every person in the church is gifted in such a way that no one serves an unimportant function. Everybody is absolutely important. Every gift that we have, large or small, serves an absolutely important function. Um, Incidentally, uh, this is just for free. Uh, Whenever you see in verse 12... Just as the body is one and has many members, or verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member. This is why I I like the language of membership when we talk about the uh, joining the church instead of, you know, the array of other terms that are used, which are fine, whatever, you can use those. But that's why I like membership is because God uses that language when he talks about us being a body. That's just a side note. So anyway... uh, He continues that same idea in verses 21 through 26 about saying you can't say you don't want to be what you want to be. And then he goes on and says, verse 22, on the contrary, the weaker parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So uh, here's what he means by that. When I read that, I was like, what is he saying? What is he saying? Um, In this particular context, weaker means can't live outside the body. So like your heart has to be inside your body. Not outside. If your heart was just hanging out out here, we'd all be grossed out and be like, that's kind of weird. Or your stomach. Like, your stomach has to be inside, right? And so people could say, your stomach's weak. Your heart's weak. It has to be protected by skin and bones. Like, no, it's not weak. God designed it to be inside. So what he's saying is, on the contrary, the parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So, and we would all agree, our heart's indispensable. We all want it. No one's like, I don't need a stomach anymore. We need to eat and we need for it to to be processed, right? So um, the parts that seem to be weaker are are indispensable. So relating that to spiritual gifts, if you are one that's weaker, perceiving to be weaker, my gift doesn't seem to be used, it's indispensable. So those gifts that in your mind or even in the, the whole Christianity at large is mine, those gifts that seem to be not so important, maybe you never ever stand on a stage and teach or uh, you just, you know, you stand at the door and you greet people or you set up chairs and nobody even knows you do that or you, you put out the Bibles for people to read or outside of Sunday morning, you, you pray for the church body by name the entire week and no one ever knows that you do that. Those parts of the body are indispensable. They're indispensable. They are absolutely needed. You, you might help uh, moms, some of you ladies might have the gift of helping, and you, and you help new moms who have no clue what they're doing. And, and no one knows that but you. Indispensable. I, I just want us to wrap our minds around what he's saying here, is that there is no small, unimportant gift. 
And every gift that you've been given has been given so that the body, the body is edified. So he doesn't actually believe they're weaker. He actually believes that they're strong and they're crucial. Every one of them is crucial. And so as you keep going, um, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may, may be no divisions in the body. I'm in verse 25. But the members may have, here it is, the same care for one another. May have the same care for one another. So that means you must care about every person in the church, no matter how popular they are, rich they are, what they look like, if they're amazingly handsome or not, or amazingly attractive, it doesn't matter. You, whoever you are, wherever you are in your life, have to have the same care and concern and love for anybody in the church, whoever they are. That's what he's saying on us. He's so composed the body in the same way that even if you have on your own body an ingrown toenail and you're like, Ah, oh, I'm putting so much emphasis right now on my ingrown toenail to all of you. My toe is killing me. I wonder if you know, you're, you're really concerned about it because it hurts you right now. If there's anybody in the church that's hurting, you care about it. Because that pain that you feel is crucial to you right now. To go and note, because you feel it with them and you care about them. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all Rejoice together. There's no jealousy here. There's no jealousy. Instead, when somebody's doing great, we love that they're doing great. If someone's hurting, we all care that they're hurting. This is the exercising of our body, our spiritual gifts for the common good. So, let's conclude with these couple questions. What would that look like here at Remedy? What would that look like? Just think big picture. What would that look like? You would think, well, that would be awesome. I mean, can you imagine how much we would love each other and care for each other. So let's good. We got the big picture and we, we're seeing what it's, what it's... I don't want to ask the big picture question. So what would that look like at Remedy? I'm going to dive down on a personal level. Okay, I'm going to say the exact same question, but it's a little bit different. Not what would that look like here at Remedy, but instead, what would that look like here for you at Remedy? For you. What would that look like here for you? How much more time do you not take for yourself and, and give to your body? For the common good, right? For the common good. Are you using your spiritual gifts at all for the common good? Are you using your spiritual gifts at all? And are they used for the common good? What does it specifically look like for you to exercise your spiritual gifts here at Remedy so that the church is edified? pointed towards the glory of Christ, and we are having and experiencing this good.